Welcome back to your primary playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tish Sussman. For those joining us for the first time, this podcast is your definitive guide to the 2020 presidential primary, explained by the women who know it best. Today, we're talking about the future of work. Basically, a decade from now, what will the workforce look like? What new jobs will exist? And what jobs won't? While there are a lot of unknowns about the future, here's what we do know. Automation and artificial intelligence are already shaking up the workplace, and they will continue to do so. Research by PricewaterhouseCoopers shows that 44% of workers with low education are at risk of losing their jobs to automation by mid-2030s, and 30% of workers overall face that same risk. Forbes has predicted a few more characteristics about the future of work. For example, they expect positions to be more fluid as people move more quickly between jobs. They expect a more decentralized workforce, in part thanks to teleworking, and also the need for, quote, more than a paycheck to entice and retain employees. When we think about who's working, we know that 52% of women are the primary breadwinners in their household, according to a 2018 survey, and trends suggest that number will continue to increase. Yet women also have lower incomes and higher rates of student debt. So what do we do about it? Well, Democratic candidates are approaching the issue of future of work from many different perspectives. As vice president, Biden focused on workforce training, especially around tech jobs, through several Obama administration initiatives. Biden has continued to advocate for workforce training on the campaign trail, as well as better, more equitable pathways from education to career to address the skills gap. Others are very focused on the role of unions in our changing workforce. Senator Sanders has centered unions in his campaign, pledging to boost union membership, punish companies who engage in union-busting practices, and protect workers' rights. Buttigieg has committed to allow gig workers, which is a growing percentage of the workforce, to unionize. Similarly, O'Rourke wants to guarantee collective bargaining rights for all workers and crack down on the misclassification of gig workers and other workers as independent contractors. Some are focused on clean energy jobs, For example, Warren wants to invest $2 trillion over the next 10 years in green research and manufacturing. And then there's more technical ideas, like Yang's plan to work with state licensure boards to increase the mobility of professional licenses between states. And let's not forget the central proposal of Yang's campaign, universal basic income, or giving every American a set amount of money each month. In Yang's case, it would be about $1,000. So given the wide range of policy proposals here, What's the right thing to be focusing on? Do any of these adequately address the challenges of a changing workforce? To help us figure this all out, I'm thrilled to welcome Angela Hanks. Angela Hanks is the Deputy Executive Director of the Groundwork Collaborative, working to advance a cross-cutting economic narrative for the progressive movement. She previously served as Director of the Center for Postsecondary and Economic Success at the Center for Law and Social Policy. Director of Workforce Development Policy at the Center for American Progress, and Senior Federal Policy Analyst at the National Skills Coalition. Angela began her career on Capitol Hill as a Counsel on Democratic Staff of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee and Legislative Assistant to Congressman Elijah Cummings. Welcome, Angela. Thanks for having me, Emily. Glad to be here. So this episode is about the future of work. It kind of feels like a vague term. Can you help us define it? Like, what do we mean when we say the future of work? I mean, especially because we had an earlier 
episode this season on the economy. So what makes this episode different than an, ec- an economy episode? Yeah, so the future of work can mean many things. And I would say in this particular moment, it means many things to many people. Uh, some folks take it to mean uh, sort of increasing uh, technological advancements and automation, um, this sort of like the robots are coming for us uh, uh, frame. Um, but it can also mean uh, a lot more than that. And I tend to think of it a bit more expansively in terms of what the future is for workers, which encompasses many things beyond sort of changes in technology and automation and covers things like what is the quality of work? Um, what are what are workers getting on the job? Uh, what is work paying? Is it paying people appropriately? Um, are people getting access to healthcare and paid leave and all of these things? Like the future of work is is as much, in my opinion, about uh, power and wages and um, and uh, sort of like the structure of work as much as it is about um, probably more so than than those other things. Um, so it sort of depends on who you speak to, but I think a more expansive definition is useful for thinking about tackling the problems that exist in that future space. That's really helpful. And can you help us understand with all of the, the changes occurring in the economy and workforce, what role does the government play in this? Like, why isn't there just free market without interventions. I feel I have the feeling you have a really good answer to this. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this is exactly that conservative worldview that I was just talking about, um, you know, for a long time. And again, this is this is not just the right. This has also been on on the progressive side as well. Our ideology around work has been has sort of decentered workers. Um, and so a consequence of that is we're not thinking about policies that actually build worker power, that raise wages, that improve the quality of work. Um, instead, we sort of have left workers to fend for themselves. And at the same time, um, there's been a concerted effort to actually undermine worker power. So it's not just that uh, we have ignored uh, the policy changes that we would need to uh to strengthen the labor market for everyone, there's actually been efforts to, you know, expand uh, right to work in many states across the country um, to keep the minimum wage at sort of ridiculously low levels. It's wild that in 2019, our federal minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour. That is not an accident. Accident That is a uh, result of concerted efforts to lobby to keep wages low for workers. Um, and, and at the same time- And excludes time, tipped workers, right? Right. And exclude lots of categories of workers as well. Exactly. As tip workers, the tip minimum wage is just above $2 an hour. I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, what is a reasonable excuse for paying someone $2 an hour to do any sort of job at all. And so um, we also have you know many workers who aren't covered by uh, kind of the the federal labor protections uh, that many of us enjoy. So for exist uh, for example, domestic workers, farm workers don't have the same rights that I have on the job. Um, and so all of these things mean that you know if if we're supposed to rely on free markets to to create the workplace or create the labor market that we want to see, I mean it hasn't done a great job. Um, and so this seems like a prime area where we really need to think about what is the level of public investment. What is uh, the role of public policy to help ensure that every worker, uh, regardless of your education, regardless of your background, uh, regardless of your race or your gender, is able to earn a decent living? So let's ground this conversation. This is really helpful background. Let's put it in the context of where the government could go. So thinking about the 2020 presidential candidates, do you think that any of the candidates that are out there are adequately talking about these future of work issues in their campaigns? 
I would say yes. Uh, one thing that's interesting is I think for some of them, they're just not talking about it in the future work context. So for example, um, there are some that are more explicit about about their plans to address technology and automation. So the Andrew Yang UBI uh, proposal that he has is sort of intended to directly address uh, the consequences of, of automation. Uh, we can talk about the substance of that and whether or not it's it's sufficient. And I think there's a good conversation to be had about uh, had about that. But but I think a lot of candidates actually do have future of work policies that they're just not naming as that. So for example, um, many of the candidates have policies that would uh, allow for sectoral bargaining. So this is taking collective bargaining outside of the firm level, moving it up to the industry-wide level uh, to ensure that workers have more leverage on the job. And so certainly that helps all workers, but I think it's especially important for workers who have very little power. Uh, so these are workers who are in uh, you know, the service sector, the retail sector, uh, doing care, performing care work, uh, all of these jobs where, where the power imbalance is really fundamentally off. Um, and I don't know that they would classify that as as a future of work proposal, uh, but certainly if you think about what the future of work is uh, and what uh, sectors are uh, increasing over time, it is really these low-wage, often low-quality jobs that are often done by low-income folks, often people of color, often women of color. Uh, and so I think that that it really is where... Um, a lot of the future of work stuff comes out for me, but it, I don't think there are many candidates who have said, like, this is my proposal for the future of work, because many of the future of work problems are also the present of work problems. Uh, all of the things I've named are things that are happening in our labor market right now. And so I think uh, candidates are talking about this, but you sort of had to read between the lines to be able to see it. You mentioned Andrew Yang has this universal basic income proposal kind of getting right to the automation, which is really huge among manufacturing. Obviously, manufacturing is very heavily impacted by automation um, and will continue to stay very centered in the presidential context because Trump is campaigning on it, right? He's campaigned on saving the manufacturing sector, and yet the news is still dominated by closing plants across the country. So in contrast, many Democrats are urging retraining of the workers, especially into some clean energy jobs. But I mean, realistically, like, is it is it too late to save these manufacturing jobs? And if it is too late, then what should happen with the workers? I think that there is sort of the the macro level what's happening to the labor market writ large, and then there's sort of the what is happening to people and communities, uh, and what do we do about that? So, so taking the the macro piece first, you know. One thing that's sort of challenging about this conversation around future of work and automation is that we tend to overblow the extent to which automation is is a real challenge in our labor market, right? So there are many jobs that uh, won't be automated. Care work is is always a good one, or won't, at least won't be automated anytime soon, uh, where we can focus our, our energy. And so I think that there is the question of to what extent is this a big labor market issue? Probably not so much. Um, one, one example that I love to use, it's sort of my favorite fun fact about uh, how we think about uh, work and, and how we value work is that uh, there are actually the same, there are more Arby's workers in America than there are coal miners total. Wow. More people who work at the restaurant retail chain Arby's than all of the coal miners in America. Yet, when we look at how we talk about policies, how we talk about workers, we tend to elevate 
a certain category of jobs and devalue another. So we should really think about sort of scale and proportion when we're thinking about future of work. So I think that's one. Um, but, you know, I think that there is this, this more human level. There are actually people who are working right now whose jobs or whose some some part of their job will go away at some point. Um, and, and that is something that we actually do need to address. While Andrew Yang may have diagnosed that particular problem correctly, that there are some folks who will, who will lose their jobs, again, I think the scale is not quite right. And so having a UBI program that, I mean, frankly, like it's $1,000 a month, $12,000 a year will not support any family. It's well below the federal poverty line in America right now. Um, and so I, I, I'm hesitant to say that that is the solution here. Um, but I do think that there is a role for public policy, whether it is providing some basic income to fee- to people who are affected by automation, whether it's providing retraining. And then I think there's a really important component here um, is that regardless of whether or not workers' jobs are going to be automated, they have to have basic rights. Um, so, you know, not not having uh, an accountable employer. Um, uh, one one challenge in the labor market right now is um, what we call uh, workplace fissuring. So that means, um, for example, the, the example that I think often gets used is when you go to a hotel, um, the person who's working uh to park your car might not work for the hotel. They probably work for a car service um, that only does valet services. And there's, so there's no moving up. There's no managerial level experience. There's no way to, to sort of move into the next career if yours is automated away. Um, and, and that presents a real challenge to workers. So I think that there are some bigger labor market problems that we can address that will help ensure that all workers, regardless of whether or not their jobs will be automated, actually have access to the supports they need. Part of the the retraining for this population, a population that may may be automated out of a job, I feel like leads us into a conversation about skills gap. You know, Biden led several initiatives around what they called upskilling and workforce training when he was vice president. Um, he's continued to make that a real centerpiece on the campaign trail. But can you help us? Can you help define the skills gap to us and help us um, put it into context of which populations we're talking about? Yes. So you've landed on one of maybe my favorite topics to talk about uh, ever. So I appreciate you asking the question. So the the idea behind the skills gap is that um, there are jobs that are going unfilled because workers lack the skills. And this is something, this is a narrative that that sort of began to crop up right after the Great Recession. Um, and you saw this where it was like, the, the kind of common thing you would hear is that there are this number of people unemployed, and yet there are 6 million job openings, and so there must be some sort of mismatch in skills. It's it's a very tight, clean story that, that frankly, ignores a lot of other things that are happening in the labor market. Um, and so, you know, in that particular moment, one of the challenges was that there just was weak demand, right? Like there, it wasn't that people lacked skills. It's that, you know, you can have a job posting open, but you might not think it's urgent to hire if you are really tight on payroll and maybe you'll leave it open for a while. It doesn't necessarily mean that someone doesn't have the skills. It might just mean that you aren't ready to hire that person. So that's, that's one, one thing. The other thing is because there were so, there was such this huge supply of workers right after the great recession, uh, the the question that you always have to ask, and I um, will forever credit uh, Heidi Schurholz at EPI who asks this question constantly, is when employers and, and policymakers talk about a skills gap, the first thing we should be asking is at what wage? Uh, when there's an, a, a 
really high supply of workers and employers are talking about not being able to find workers who are skilled, you know, I mean, they have to they have to actually pay for labor and those costs are are a part of their business. And so, you know, I think that that's something that that is constantly got to be a question that we're asking. Um, and then and then the other thing I would say that the, the third piece of that is we should also think about what we're asking of employers, right? It's it's sort of interesting to hear year after year employers talking about how workers lack the skills, and then often we see employers uh, sitting on the sideline when, sidelines when it comes to training. Um, there's actually research um, out of University of um, Las Vegas, Nevada, or um, out of UNLV that shows that employer-provided training actually declined in the 2000s. So this is right as employers are saying, workers aren't skilled, workers aren't skilled. They were also decreasing their investments in workers. Um, and so it's sort of hard to, to have a whole lot of sympathy for that argument. We know that they're making decisions um, that will certainly mean that their workforces are, are less skilled. Um, and, and, you know, I think the other, the other piece uh, about the skills gap that I think is maybe most pernicious. And um, certainly, I don't think it's intentional on for many folks, but I think it's something to be concerned about is I think it obscures some bigger questions about what's going on in the labor market, right? So if we're talking about skills gaps, and we're talking about retraining, like, sure, it's important for people to get training. And that's, that's a, a valuable public investment to make. And we should do that. At the same time, that is not the central problem of our labor market right now. The central issues we have right now are stagnant wages, poor job quality, um, workers being forced into non-competes, uh, sort of a, a fundamental power imbalance that underlies all of these things. And so when we tar- start talking about something like a skills gap, we're really sort of changing the conversation away from these really big structural issues that we have to deal with in order to, to cater to something that, that frankly doesn't really include an analysis of how power uh, fits into uh, labor market dynamics. And where do you think the government role is or should be in that? Oh, I think there are lots of things <laughs> uh, that government could do. And I think this goes back to some of the things that we're seeing um, from from candidates. I mean, fundamentally, in order to have a better labor market that provides access um, to decent jobs, that ensures that workers will get training for jobs that avail- are available, we need to have more worker power. Uh, you know, I think one thing that we've seen happen over the last several decades, especially in this sort of coincides with the conservative economic worldview uh, dominating, is we've seen a real decline in, in union membership. And so, Unions have been historically some of the best trainers that we've had. Um, and so it's, it's a real loss for workers and for companies that unions that, that frankly were providing really significant public goods um, don't exist to the same extent they did a generation ago. Um, and so there are plans uh, from some of the candidates to um, make it easier to collectively bargain, um, to expand it to uh, new industries, again, to this move, to move to this uh, sectoral bargaining model. And then there are other sort of things that you can do to build worker power um, that are um, complementary to building up actual uh, former or formal labor organizations like raising the minimum wage is, is one thing you can do to build worker power and sort of helps uh, workers get access to the things they need on the job. Um, that's something that the federal government can do. Um, 
making it easier for um, or making it illegal for employers to require their employees to uh, sign agreements for forced arbitration or sign non-competes. There is no reason why a McDonald's worker should have to sign a non-compete clause to make sure that they can't go work at Arby's uh, when they aren't getting, you know, at least 20 hours a week at McDonald's. I mean, that is something that is fundamentally, I think, a, a total perfect example of an abuse of power um, that that government has a real role in reigning in. So I think there are a lot of different options out there. Um, The the challenge is just making sure that we're um, uh, sort of approaching all of them uh, really thoughtfully and taking a a really um, expansive approach here. So a lot of candidates, including O'Rourke, Sanders, Warren, and others, have proposed plan to strengthen unions and boost their memberships. O'Rourke and Buttigieg have specifically called for gig workers to be unionized. But how much of that is control of the presidency? And are the proposals like the right ones to be focusing on the right things right now? I mean, I do think that there are a lot of things that can happen at the federal level. Um, And and frankly, I I think that one thing that I've actually been really – sort of pleasantly surprised by um, as candidates have unveiled their proposal is they're really thinking about what the tools available to the federal government are in a pretty expansive way. So there are you know things that you need Congress for, for example, um, but there are also things that the Department of Labor can do uh, now. And that ranges from everything from setting policy uh, through the regulatory process to pursuing litigation. I mean, there are plenty of different options that uh, can be taken um, through some sort of executive or agency action that don't actually require Congress. And I think that actually a lot of candidates have done a pretty good job of thinking about uh, how to uh, how to enact uh, stronger labor policies using the tools that they have at their disposal. So speaking of things Congress can do, the House passed a $15 minimum wage this year, which included tipped workers for the first time. The Senate has failed to take up the bill, unsurprising, but most of the Democratic candidates support a $15 federal minimum wage. But the differences seem to be around different ways they advocate like to get there, like how to phase it in or regional differences. So do you think that any of their plans really stand out as like particularly good or particularly bad? Uh, In this case, I think the best plans are the ones that are most aggressive on raising wages for workers. I mean, the the federal minimum wage has been stuck at seven twenty five now for a decade. Uh, it is fundamentally way too low for any person or any family to live on. And we know from research that um, the Economic Policy Institute and others have done um, that that minimum wage workers are not kids. They are adults. They are caregivers. They are parents. Uh, they are people who are struggling to make ends meet and and frankly can't because the federal government has not helped raise the wages over the last decade. I mean that it's really it's really devastating when you think about it. And so um you know I think it's it's uh the best plans are really those that go full steam ahead uh and ensure that workers don't have to wait uh to get paid a decent wage because they're earning it. And frankly at the same time that we're seeing sort of questions about how quickly or or not quickly uh, to raise the minimum wage, Um, something that I think often doesn't come into the conversation is what's happening at the top, right? So at the same time that we're kind of quibbling about, well, is it 15 by 2022 or 2024, we're just two years off of the 
biggest tax cut for uh, the wealthy um, that we've seen in generations. I mean, I mean, truly, it's it's hard to understand how we can afford a one point five trillion dollar tax cut, and and yet we we are hesitant to say that we can pay workers a livable wage. So I think it's important to think about those things um, as we're as we're setting policy. And really, again, we we can do it, and I think the candidates that acknowledge that we can do it and we can do it quickly are the ones who are right on here. You've mentioned care workers. Look, you've said that care workers are the real future of the economy, but undercounted in some of the literature or projections. So can you explain this to us, why this is true? Yes. So there are a lot of things going on with care work. I think in some ways, care work, in my opinion, sort of perfectly encapsulates some of the really fundamental uh, flaws with our labor market. So this is a job that is largely done almost exclusively done by women. Uh, Majority of people who do it are women of color. Um, And it is a job that has been both undervalued in the, like, in the legal sense of how we classify these workers, um, but also in terms of the policies um, that we've set going forward to to protect them. So care work is um, a difficult job and one that can really to be defined in a lot of different ways, right? So there's there's leaving your home uh, and caring for someone who is sick or disabled uh, outside of your home, but there's also the important care work that happens um, within people's homes as well, right? So um, this is a job where average wages, I think, are, are still stuck around $10 an hour, maybe slightly less. Um, so you might be leaving your home, going to ride the bus to go to someone else's house um, to provide care work. And like, you might have a sick relative uh, at home who also needs care. And there's really no way to acknowledge or reward um, the work that people are doing to care for their, their own loved ones. And that's sort of on top of this, this really big challenge um, that exists for folks who are doing more formalized care work, where they're in jobs that are low wage, that are very isolated, which both is difficult emotionally, but also uh, makes it difficult when you're thinking about organizing, right? Like it's easier if you can talk to your colleague who's sitting right next to you and say, hey, let's start a union. (laughs) It's a lot more difficult when you don't know any of your colleagues and you're just showing up to your job site every day and to the best of your knowledge, you're the only person there. So there are all of these real challenges. And then, you know, I think going back to the makeup of the care workforce, we should think about why care work is such a hard and difficult and undervalued job. Uh, it, It is, in my opinion, no accident that this is a job that's predominantly done by women of color. And it's very, um, these tend to be really low quality jobs and undervalued jobs. Uh, You know, this is this is something that I think we see across the labor market in different periods, you know, like, computer programmer used to be a job that was largely held by women, and was a pretty low wage entry level job until men started to do it. And then all of a sudden, it became much more highly skilled and technical. And so, um, or at least, became uh, known as more highly skilled and technical. And so, uh, you know, who does these jobs really matters and it influences the way that we create policy around uh, the jobs. So I think with care work, especially, um, we've ignored many of the big problems that are are going on in this industry in part because, frankly, our, our economy and our policymakers don't value these workers enough. Angela, thank you so much. This has been a really, really interesting conversation and certainly adds to our our previous economic conversation. This helps immensely. Thank you so much for being on with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Primary Playlist. 
You can find more from Angela on Twitter at Angela Hanks. For behind the scenes photos and extras, follow us on Instagram at Your Primary Playlist. Special thanks to Wonder Media Network and the whole Your Primary Playlist team for producing this show. Talk to you next time. Hey there, Primary Playlist listeners. Here's another podcast I thought you might be interested in. It's called The Politics Guys. Although I will note, there is a woman on the show. Tired of what they felt were stale partisan talking points from the media, this group of political scientists, policy experts, and campaign veterans launched a bipartisan podcast to engage in civil and rational debates. You can find The Politics Guys wherever you listen to podcasts or by visiting their website, politicsguys.com. That's politicsguys.com.